Hi, this week on Papa PhD, I have the pleasure of bringing you my conversation with Greg Kelly, executive producer of Ideas on CBC Radio. During our conversation, Greg shares a very colorful recount of his experience in Oxford as a literature PhD student and talks about his post-PhD career choices and journey. Greg is a great storyteller, so I think you'll really enjoy this one. Happy listening! Now, many people know, many may not know, that when you get a rejection from the shirk, it's an envelope, uh, just a letter size on an envelope. When it's an acceptance, you get a package made by 10 bigger envelope. And I could see in the K box, there was that envelope. And I stood still. I was absolutely flat, like absolutely nothing. I should have been jumping out of my skin and there was zero. And so I talked to, I, I had a, some older friends at Oxford who were also uh, students there, uh, aspiring academics. I talked to my mom and dad, and I returned the uh, postdoc. I thought, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not called to do it. And I speculate, and there must be some um, culture that has a term for it. We in the West dice and splice the psyche in all these different ways with id or collective unconscious, what have you. And um, But I think there's a part of us that knows before the rest of us knows. And it's like you're catching up to that thing. And you say, I decided. But sometimes we say, I came to a decision. I came to a conclusion. And I think that imagery is much more accurate. It is as though I arrived finally after, oh, what will I do? Oh, well, that's not really the issue. Oh, but I got this money. That's not really the issue. Oh, uh, uh, do you want to do it or not? Are you called to do it? Is it you or is it not you? And um, it wasn't. It wasn't. And so I had to arrive to that. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. This week, I have the great pleasure of having with me Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly took his doctorate in literature at Oxford University. He has worked at CBC Radio and Television, as well as the United States and Europe, and has won international awards and acclaim in both media. Greg is now the executive producer of CBC Radio Ideas. Welcome to Papa PhD, Greg. Hi, David. Pleased to be here. Uh, I'm super happy to have you here. Um, you, you, uh, the person who uh, told me to to reach out to you uh, was Paul Yaknin, who has been uh, a guest on the show, and uh, I'm I'm really really eager to uh, share your story with the listeners. And uh, to 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 also uh, share your journey of how you went from your PhD in, in in literature to what you do today. So just to start, I I'd like to ask you to maybe because I really quickly you know introduced you. Uh, I just ask you to add one or more one or two more pieces of the puzzle of you know how you got uh, you know how you came to do a PhD. And then what were the steps that brought you? And then we'll, we'll tell the story bit by bit. 
Okay, well, I guess uh, I decided to pursue a doctorate because um, I was experimenting with the idea of perhaps becoming an academic. I didn't know, really. Uh, but at the time, the subject of my interest was Oscar Wilde. Okay. And back then, in the mid to late 80s, the scholarship on Wilde was absolutely execrable. It was just awful, which leaves you room. Mm-hmm. Uh, to take him more. This would have been way at the beginning, maybe even slightly before the rise of Irish studies, uh, gay studies, uh, and uh, it was the same uh, paucity of good scholarship that led the great literary biographer Richard Elman to begin writing his massive and groundbreaking biography on Oscar Wilde, the last book that he ever published before mm-hmm. he died, and he was dying as he was writing it. Um, and so uh, it was, seemed to be in the air. It was this groundswell. It was just starting to happen. And of course, in literary theoretical circles, attention to language and the operations of language were uh, very much in, in the fore. And Wilde is everything about mm-hmm. language. I mean, just just uh, his, his use of paradox to counter the orthodox um, uh, and how power gets embedded into, into, into uses of language and so on. And so um, it seemed like the playground was open and ready to be uh, occupied and and played in. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. Okay. And uh, so can you talk a little bit? So you uh, can you talk of where you came from? You know, you traveled to Oxford from where? What what came? What was the the previous chapter? Let's say I did my undergraduate uh, in interdisciplinary studies and literature at York University. And then I did an MA, a combined MA, University of Toronto and York University. It was jointly offered in Victorian studies. And that master's, you had an option. You could do uh, two courses and a thesis, and that could take two years. You could do about a little over a year, three courses and an extended paper, or you could do four courses. I did four courses in eight months, and I produced about the equivalent of a PhD mm-hmm. volume of work, uh, not in, just in terms of output. Mm-hmm. So it was grinding and it was grueling. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and also the commuting uh, between York and the University of Toronto in the winter, buses and subways and stuff, it was grinding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, made me physically ill at one point, I have mm-hmm. to say. But it was very good uh, to keep your eye on, on the prize, which was to hopscotch, as it were, uh, off to Oxford. Well, Wilde himself was an undergraduate where the Bodleian Library, as a copyright library, anything published in Britain has to, by law, be there or to be made available there. And so I could look at first editions of Wilde's book, or anybody's for that matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, so it was an extraordinary research possibility in the master's year, which was extremely difficult. I mean, it was a grind, as I keep saying. It was Mm -hmm. a pounding. Uh, uh, allowed me, um, uh, uh, what was, it was a difficult hand to play, but it was the one that got you the bigger hand, mm-hmm. which was Oxford. That's interesting because, uh, I, people have, uh, uh, in other, in other interviews told me that the master's is an, is an important step, uh, before the PhD actually to also find out whether a PhD is something you want to, to mm-hmm. pursue. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, it seemed that like you had a very, active <laughs> masters uh, can you talk about the what the dynamic was with uh, your supervisors what what was the fuel that that allowed you 
besides your health that I heard you already said that kind mm, of it suffered yeah, yeah. but on the side of how you know how your your message was organized to allow you to have such production at the end of it and then to jump to to Oxford well it was four seminars and, okay uh, and and two different locations so the University of Toronto and uh, and York University so um, and uh, the professors were great Um Uh, they were teaching things they themselves were interested in, whether it was, you know, um, uh, certain features of Victorian poetry or Victorian thought um, and um, uh, religion and science in Victorian England, um, Ruskin and Hardy. And there was one other course that I've forgotten. And, uh, oh, I know it was, uh, it was um, literature and history. Uh, uh, the, the, the tendentious relationship between the two mm -hmm. uh, and what, what can unfold the other and so on. Um, and, um, uh, and so the, um, it gave a very good grounding for entering into doctoral work because mm -hmm. particularly in the British system, it is solitary. Yeah. I mean, it's solitary. <laughs> it is expected that you will know what you need to know. And if you don't know it, you fail. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and unlike the North American system where there's all of this structure perhaps even overstructure where you've got to do these mandatory courses, you have comprehensive exams, you have a committee, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, at a place like Oxford, there's none of that. Mm. None. And so um, not in any meaningful measure. And it tends to weed itself out. I saw brilliant people fall by the wayside, uh, either through problems they were having or just didn't want to do it, what have you. Mm -hmm. And um, the impetus to continue and to get it was what you, what my mother's generation would have called the fear of God uh, <laughs> by seeing people who were so much, you know, who had more brains than they knew what to do with, who had won every fellowship and scholarship imaginable, had superstar supervisors, which is not always a good thing, mm -hmm. um, and um, fall away, just drift away. And it's not like, oh, screw this. I don't like this anymore. I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. No, it was this fade to black kind of, this one Canadian guy, Uh, brilliant, brilliant, uh, sickly as a kid, okay. asthmatic, um, and uh, very bookish, um, gifted, and was coming out as a young gay man, and then would take up smoking. As At the same time that he was taking a step forward, he would take this pretty self-destructive step backwards. Mm -hmm. And I saw him just fade away. He exhausted his funding. He moved out of Oxford to work in a bookstore in London that sold, you know, books about obscure French film theory mm -hmm. uh, that nobody cares about. Uh, and and I just thought, oh my God, I'm not doing that. I would rather fail. I'd rather have the examiners urinate on my thesis <laughs> in front of me than than just fade away. I'd rather lose on the playing field mm -hmm. than just be this half-formed contour on the sidelines. Mm. I do know people who just bagged it all. Um, there was a fellow in, in my cohort uh, in a doctoral program at Oxford who was interested in doing something on Thomas Merton. They wouldn't let him, so he chose Milton. And eh, he was doing a lot of, there's a lot of student theater at Oxford. It's very rich that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was doing that only comedy. And he got some nibbles back in his hometown of Glasgow, back to Scotland. Okay. And he, he, and he kept, he left the doctoral uh, program because it really wasn't his thing. Uh, and he went to something okay. and his name is Armando Iannucci. He became the 
you know, um, producer Veep and of death okay. of Stalin and of the David Copperfield movie. So the lesson there is you don't leave something, you go to something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was determined I would rather, I'd, I'd rather, you know, get on the gloves and go in the ring with the examiners if it came down to it than just this kind of, you know, this, this kind of what we, erase, self-erasure. Just, you know. It's, it's really interesting uh, what you say. And uh, it's uh, before I, I wanted to talk, and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later, about uh, this thing of deciding, okay, now I'm going to move continents and move countries and, and go into this completely different culture, mm-hmm. like you said. Even the academic culture, like you said, was sure, different. Oh, yeah. But this, oh, yeah. this story of fading away, um, I, I just uh, listened to a, a series of, of, episode, of podcast episodes in French about uh, people who, who quit their PhD for different mm-hmm. reasons and i think it's it's a reality that's still out there but and and i think there's many reasons for that yeah, sure. uh, a lot of them institutional of, of uh, you know mm-hmm. how much is is demanded from from phd students and i believe because i come from the stem space and it's very much structured everywhere it, it, there's a structure that's needed to have a lab to to do uh, to do scientific research on you know i don't know uh, biological models etc which is what i did but i have a feeling that from the conversations i've had with with phd's in literature or in humanities in 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 and in social sciences that like you said it's more of a solitary exercise uh, i i'm not sure how funding happens and uh, and i've heard i've been told that in france at least there's a lot of people that are doing phd's without funding and oh god yeah and uh, can you talk a little bit about what and and maybe I and I don't know if you're if you're in touch you know if you have the, your your thumb on the pulse of of PhDs in literature today but do you think things have changed and people are better uh, are better surrounded by resources and uh, you know because what you tell is 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 very bleak in a way especially this example of of, of this sure. person who faded away yeah. but um, because. We think we're talking about Oxford. You know, it's an arcane institution, mm-hmm. and and culture in these places tends to be very rooted in the past and not to change very easily. And I wonder whether mm-hmm. you have a, a, an inkling of what what things are looking like today. Uh, I do actually, because I know um, um, a couple of people are still there. Okay, uh, and the metaphor I'll give you is the Bodleian Library itself, where. Um, when you needed to look up a publication, you had to go to a certain section of the Bodleian Library. Mm-hmm. And there would be these giant tomes, huge, huge books, um, that were about the size of probably uh, elbow to the tip of your middle finger, probably, okay. and about as thick as uh, as the length from the base of your palm to your middle finger. Big, big books. Huge. (laughs) uh, Old, brown, discolored. You open them up and strips of paper are pasted into them. Mm -hmm. And in handwritten notes, author's last name, comma, first name or initials, and the title. And a bit of other coded information that you would write down on a slip and you'd have to submit to one of the desks to have it called up from the underground stacks. Mm -hmm. And it was divided mysteriously into pre-1929 and post-1929. <laughs> okay. And when the option of computerizing was being tabled, I was there in the mid-80s. 
uh, mid eighties to late eighties. Okay. Um, and right then and there, the option was being taken to computerize the entire system and the powers that be the august, you know, white haired self-styled senatorial committee in charge of these things decided against at that time against digitizing because this computing thing could be a fad. It could Hmm. be a passing fad. So that, and that's all changed. Um, It's up to speed and so on. It just, and the way we put it, a friend of mine who taught there that Oxford got dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century, (laughs) right when we were starting the 21st. Okay. Oh my. Okay. Okay. So, so things have finally changed, but for a long I time. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that is good news, and and I and I see movement in universities, uh, uh, at least around me, uh, that that shows things are, are changing. But it's these are huge uh, historical, often mm-hmm. uh, uh, entities, and there's there's a lot of inertia, and there's there's a lot of tradition. And one, right? of, one of the you know, David, one of the yeah. things that strikes me about a place like Oxford, and I'm sure it will be the same of the Sorbonne or what have you. Mm-hmm. These much older established elite or quote unquote elite, take your preference, mm. um, is that uh, if you're looking for ways to demythologize that, you'll find them immediately. There are mm-hmm. plenty of stupid people in a place like Oxford. <laughs> um, uh, there are plenty of people in positions of authority who don't belong there. You will find them. You will also find people who justify the reputation of mm-hmm. being an elevated elite, because you will find that too. But the, the other thing that you'll find, I think, is certain facets of the institution which are an imitation of itself. Okay. Now, Oxford is a collegiate system. And what I found is that the bigger, more established, wealthier colleges were less pretentious, less stuffy, hmm. less caricatured than the smaller ones, which where you'd see mu- much more often people cultivating that Oxbridge eccentricity hmm. That, that, that kind of, you know, willful ignorance of current events or popular culture or what have you, or that kind of two-dimensional character that you see constantly in movies and in books and so on. Mm-hmm. That does exist, but it's like an imitation of itself. It's, it's not real, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly when you get talking, and there's a huge division between graduate and undergraduate. Undergraduates are located in the college. Um, the, 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 um, it's very clear that there's a menu of stuff, whether it's this tutor or the rowing or what have you, it's very, very, um, tight, not necessarily organized, but it's all around you. Mm -hmm. Graduates live on the perimeter. And, uh, if you don't go to all of the things in the first month, whether it's that, that fair where this hobby club or that hockey team, like all of these clubs and activities are represented and certain number of receptions are organized. But if at the end of October you haven't established um, activities or a social life for yourself, you're kind of screwed for the next Mm. three years. Uh, And so it's a very disparate set of realities. But among the graduate students, though, um, the way I put it was everybody seems to arrived in Oxford looking for the mythological Oxford, Mm -hmm. which does and does not exist at the same time. (laughs) But you find each other. You will eventually find each other. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I played hockey, ice hockey for the university. Okay. I could never make a Canadian team. Um, <laughs> it's the only hockey dressing room I've ever seen copies of Das Kapital in, ever. Uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, there are two or three players who were pretty good. 
and the rest of us had sticks in our hands. Mm. Um, if you had a pair of skates and a pulse, you'd probably make the team. <laughs> and um, the people I know from that team, I still know. So the, 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 the real Oxford, which doesn't exist, becomes real through the people that you meet, but somehow not this other thing that you were kind of looking for, some kind of vaguely elevated magical thing. Mm. There are elements of that, but really what you end up doing is bumping into people of similar, on a similar quest, if you like. That is really other pilgrims, yeah, other pilgrims, other <laughs> pilgrims on the path. That, that's that's really really interesting, and uh, I I often uh, mention being part of a, a sports club or a theater group or something that creates community, uh, and and where you'll meet uh, students who are not in your lab or even in your institute. Yeah, I think that's really important as a key thing, uh, as because. I do feel uh, that going through university, going through grad school is a privilege in a certain aspect. And that's why also when you leave academia in a way, there's a, a grieving that, that happens because you're leaving this family and this space mm -hmm. that is that has mm -hmm. this specific... An identity. Yeah, an identity. Time runs at a different pace. Uh, and, and people, you know, you're, there's a lot of discussing ideas versus if when you're in the world, well, uh, maybe there's less of that and more doing things, or at least I, I'm simplifying. But I do feel, I do, I'm, I am very thankful for the time I had uh, in graduate school and, and also for the people I have met there. And now it's interesting because what you just said makes me want to talk about this aspect of what, what the repercussions or the repercussions are of going through grad school, of meeting these people, what what's 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, what does that look like? And uh, and um, it feels that, from what you said, you're still in contact with these people. I don't know mm -hmm. if you collaborate with, these, with, with the people you played hockey with, but how, you know, and why I'm asking this is because people might think that academia and the world are too airtight compartments but i believe that it's the connections and the people we cross paths with and we develop friendships with and and, and relation relations with in grad school these relations are what stays and 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 that that uh, uh in, can make um uh, anyway can enrich your yeah. your life later on uh i i don't i'm not being clear with my question but my question is and I think you've already mentioned it, that's why maybe it's not worth asking, is how important do you think it is to not stay just in the lab doing your research, but yes, to, to be part in these groups, in these activities when you're in graduate oh, school? I, I, I think it's, you know, I knew a, a, a patrician young woman from St. Louis hmm. who had like a string of names all connected by, uh, you know, the uh, do. Madeline de Redding Krauss and so on. Okay, okay. I came from one of the, and very uh, slightly on the humorous, humorless side. Uh, I quite liked her. Um, mm. And um, at times she was overly punctilious with her reasoning. She came from a medical background, but okay. wanted to go to Oxford to do theology and ethics oh, and well. then return and finish off her medical degree. And she was a committed Christian. A very, a somewhat prim and proper uh, 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 woman who would, I don't think I ever heard her swear. I think she would say, oh, you know, oh golly. I think mm -hmm. that it, very intelligent, but very, you can kind of get an image of her. Mm -hmm. And um, 
playing Trivial Pursuit, the question came up, what is a nihilist? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, Augustine said, (laughs) and you know it's already over, Augustine (laughs) said that there are those who believe that the universe was created from nothing, ex nihilo, Mm -hmm. and those who believe it was created from something, ex res. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to say a nihilist is someone who believes that the universe was created from nothing. No, Madeline, it's somebody who just doesn't believe, and you have to, you know, so there's that kind of unreal. Every once in a while, Madeline would say something really, really insightful. And one that I won't forget is that um, she saw that I had a little copy, a, a little portrait uh, biography of very like, pocket size, not much bigger than a cell phone, um, of Dante. She mm-hmm. said, oh, I thought you were doing Oscar Wilde. I said, yeah, I just don't know much about Dante. And I, I was starting to read something. I found it really interesting. So, and she took a breath and looked off uh, at the horizon and said, this is what I love about people in the humanities. They'll just do things because they're interested and it's interesting. And it's this growth. And, and I thought, I, I guess I swim in that water. So I don't, <laughs> I don't feel it. I don't see it, but she did. And I think she, I think she's bang on to something because, you know, even on a practical thing, um, the English aren't known for their cuisine around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and much has changed since the Thatcher era. Mm-hmm. A lot has changed. But institutionally, back in the 80s, at a college, it was food you wouldn't give to a starving dog. It was mm-hmm. absolutely appalling. Overboiled spaghetti that would fall off your fork with oh roast potatoes, oh. as, as though there's a shortage of starch in the world or something, <laughs> so you better stock up. Absolutely appalling. High table is a different matter. These are chefs imported from France and so on, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a class distinction, of course, um, to have high table and then, and then uh, common tables. And, um, and, uh, and I had never eaten vegetarian food. Uh, okay. and, uh, so when you get together and, and cook, the best vegetarian cooking I had in my life was in England from mm-hmm. other students who had made a decision to eat this way in their lives okay. and did it properly. Like absolutely gorgeous stuff that you'd concoct out of these small kitchens and uh, cookers and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, um, and uh, and of course, conversation ensues, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's that to use an outdated image of uh, of a kind of pinball effect of of bouncing off all of these things, and somebody always knows somebody, mm-hmm. and then you find these extraordinary people. Uh, one of whom is what was he doing? It was a very specialized area of scientific research, and he was also um, um, uh, first violinist i think of the oh, wow. orchestra and uh, yeah this sort of thing right the, these these not hidden talents just stuff that you wouldn't have known mm-hmm. and that part is the extraordinary it is absolutely crucial that people get out of their study hole uh study carol or their lab and bump into others doing something um because otherwise it gets too it's boring it gets too isolated and you know uh it's been said the reason why you do peer research, not just applied, is because you don't know what it will lead to. And it's the same principle at work there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I agree totally. And it's, it's kind of a... And plus, also, it can, ha- it can have positive e- effects on your research mm-hmm. because of these bounce, bouncing of ideas yeah. and this Well, you know what? You're absolutely right. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but um, uh, uh, in the... Uh, okay. Uh, how to how make... The middle common room, 
at my college, which is Hartford College, mm-hmm. which looks as though it's spelled Hertford College, but it's English, so it's Hartford mm-hmm. after a heart, you know, the, the like deer-like um, uh, animal, and okay. um, and the uh, middle common room is where graduate students were allowed to hang out in, mm-hmm. and there was a lower one, and thank God there were American students there, somebody who knew somebody at Apple and so, and they get things okay. done and the kind of sneering anti-Americanism that I see even now, uh, Oxford cured me of that, of that little brother syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Americans got stuff done. They just did. They mm-hmm. got it done. And so we got these first wave of, uh, uh, what were they, what were they called? Mac. Oh, good God. What were they? What these little Mac, Macintosh computers uh, and uh, and which made writing a thesis so much easier. I mean, mm-hmm. footnoting capability, all kinds oh, yeah. of stuff. You don't have to type anymore. <laughs> uh, it was right on that cusp, right from typing to word processing, as it was called. And another guy who had entered Oxford in my year, a German guy, German-Jewish guy who was doing a lot of Midrash studies, and um, just happened to be very, very on top of his ancient Greek. Okay. Well, Oscar Wilde was a Greek scholar. He was mm-hmm. a classic scholar and an elite one. He won a fellowship to get over to, uh, a scholarship rather, to get over to, uh, to Oxford from his native Dublin. And, um, um, and so Wilde wrote a series of lesser-known works that are really called uh, um, poems and prose, some of which riff off of biblical stories okay. so for example um you know we we all know the pericope adultery the, the woman who who's going to be stoned for adultery although it's never made clear if she did it or not mm. and so well in wild's version of it uh uh um when asked why she's doing this she says well it's pleasant i like it and mm. there's this sort of dumbfounded silence and so on so it kind of takes some of this stuff and turns it over and um, at certain junctures, a character is said to, um, to to turn, to be turning. And I can I can remember from an undergraduate course, the phrase "repent and be saved." And there's been bloodshed over if you repent, you are saved, or these two distinct processes: mm-hmm. you must repent and you must be saved. And being saved entails a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. So is it is it a conjunction or a disjunction? And so um, it turns out, I think if I've got it right, the, 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 the language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek, um, that was in circulation and uh, practice in, in, uh, in, in what, you know, um, um, Palestine, to use the biblical term, mm-hmm. uh, was Koine. And so there's Alex, the biblical scholar, and I was talking about some of this stuff, and he's, oh yeah, that verb, that's metanoia. So what? Oh yeah, metanoia. It means to, it means to turn. It means it's got that repent, and you're turning. It's like a 180, a pivot kind mm-hmm. of thing. And uh, so, and there are a couple of other flourishes like that. It, this is all really footnotey, but it's it enriched the arguments, and it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's not, and that's because Alex sat on the other table across mm-hmm. from me. Uh, about two arms lengths away doing his thing as I was doing mine. And, and that little bit of cross pollination, not to mention the moral support just by slogging it out around the same time, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff is really hard to overestimate mm-hmm. that kind of not consciously constructed support network. Well, it doesn't feel like a support network <laughs> when you're in a support network. It does not feel like that's just a term that people use. And it's, 
overused by administrations, all kinds of stuff. However, the reality of it cannot be underestimated. And just to be, uh, as I say, putting together, typing it out, getting the chapters done and so on. Mm. I, I think, did Alex actually proofread mine? No, another, another guy did. Mm. Um, and, uh, um, but I wouldn't have had the metanoia uh, and, the, and the Greek lettering. Uh, unless it were unless it were Alex, unless that conversation would have happened. No, it's it's yeah. super interesting, and yeah, but th this aspect of community, I think, uh, I think it's it's clear enough that you you felt uh, or that you feel that it was really important. Oh, now, yeah. I, I think at this point of the the conversation, I'd like to to kind of go to so you get to Oxford. You want to uh, to do this work in this field that is still you know that hasn't been touched or or just very little, which is Oscar Wilde. And you, you, you want to become, uh, I imagine, an Oscar Wilde scholar later on. But then the years go on, and what happens by the end of the PhD? And and you know, what's the realis the realization that comes in terms of, am I or am I not going to go into this path right. of becoming a scholar? Well, I can remember, uh, you know, the very moment when I decided, no, I'm not going to do this. And uh, further, um, the background is that again, in the mid-80s, especially, French theory was very dominant, Foucault, Derrida, and so okay. on. Um, and I would even say oppressive. These systems of thought were purport to be, I suppose, challenging various orthodoxies about beauty, truth, meaning, and so on. Mm -hmm. But I found they became their own orthodoxies and, and functioned very similarly among an intellectual class the way popular music or rock bands did when you're much younger as an adolescent. These were social markers. Mm. And also, I think there are institutional reasons why these really arcane, recondite, obfuscating vocabularies got professionalized that has to do with um, a whole neoliberal mindset that was brought to the university. Mm. You know, at the same time that we were getting trickle-down economics and, and uh, uh, essentially economic survival of the fittest, we were also getting published or perish. They needed yeah. a professionalized vocabulary. And I was getting very disenchanted with it and bored, to be quite blunt, mm -hmm. and growing contempt for them, which I still have now. I think there was mm -hmm. no justification for this kind of um, configuration of the relationship between the writer and the reader. I find it very, very um, uh, seniorial mm -hmm. that I do not owe it to you to even attempt clarity. You owe it to me to figure me out. And I'm having none of it. I am resolutely new world about this stuff i don't believe in that so um i had a relationship with uh, uh, an american at oxford and she went off to berkeley okay i was thinking maybe of pursuing a second doctorate at stanford and uh partly maybe to pursue things with her we'd broken up it got back uh, it's it's a, you know divided by that whole like, forget it right yeah. but anyhow it was in this yo-yoing thing and uh i'd gone home for part of the summer i was going to sit for my GREs, you know, to get into grad school in mm -hmm. the States and didn't know if I still wanted to do it, but I was practicing. I was up at seven in the morning. I was doing those booklet exercises. Yeah. I sent off my check and I was going to sit the thing. And then I thought, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. I don't really know. And I'd also applied for a SHRC, a Canada Council Grant okay. uh, postdoc. Well, before I returned to Oxford, I'd get my check returned. I'd filled it out in pencil. So I couldn't sit the GREs, and now I wasn't going to. Okay. I just wasn't going to do it. I get to Oxford. I'm quite downcast. It's the end of the summer, so the undergraduates are not in full force in the university until October. Relatively quiet, kind of rainy, very moody. 
Mm-hmm. And I walk up the stairs to the middle common room, which had an open-faced mailboxes. Um, and Kay, my last name is Kelly, so Kay happened to be more or less in the middle. Mm-hmm. Now, many people know, many may not know, that when you get a rejection from the shirk, it's an envelope, uh, mm-hmm. just a letter-sized normal envelope. When it's an acceptance, you get a package, an 8 by 10 bigger envelope. Okay. And I could see in the K box, there was that envelope. And I stood still on the stairs. No one else was around. There's stone stairs. It's kind of musty and, musty and old. I mm-hmm. could see it a few levels above me, steps above me. And I just stood still. I was absolutely flat, like absolutely um, still. Mm-hmm. Uh, not numb, but a kind of um, No of emotion? Nothing. I should have been jumping out of my skin, and it was zero. It was zero. And so, I of course, I went through the rituals that you have to do. I talked to, I, I had um, some older friends at Oxford who were also uh, students there, mm-hmm. uh, aspiring academics. I talked to my mom and dad and uh, uh, on the phone, and I returned the uh, postdoc. It would have been $23,000, I think, renewable for two to three years. Uh, and uh, it would have been at Stanford. And, so, and I, I, I thought, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not called to do it. This mm-hmm. is, this, I should have been. And I speculate, and there must be some um, culture that has a term for it. Mm-hmm. We in the West dice and splice the psyche in all these different ways, with mm-hmm. id or collective unconscious, what have you. And, um, but I think there's a part of us that knows before the rest of us knows. And mm-hmm. it's like you're catching up to that thing. <laughs> and you say, I decided. But sometimes we say, I came to a decision. I came to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think that imagery is much more accurate. It is as though I arrived finally after, oh, what will I do? Well, well, that's not really the issue. Oh, but I got this money. That's not really the issue. Oh, uh, uh, do you want to do it or not? Mm-hmm. Are you called to do it? Is it you or is it not you? And um, it wasn't. It wasn't. And so I had to arrive to that. And then, as as my mom said, you know, uh, you don't need to worry about the next step. Just finish what you came to do. Just just finish what you came to do. Mm-hmm. And my dad said, just because it's there, just because it's available, doesn't mean you should do it. So 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 what? And then it all fell away. I didn't need to do it. And it wasn't an angry thing. It wasn't us. Ah, ah, you know, no, uh, uh, you know. Th- to hell with this. It was like, no, I'm at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm at the end of this. Uh, I can do this, um, but I'm just doing it by default, mm-hmm. not out of purpose, not mm-hmm. out of desire. I don't believe in what I'm doing, writing articles for three people about something I don't even care about. I'm not doing that. You know? So I left it for the stability of journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, I'm being ironic. Journalism is not st- stable. So like you said, you left for another project. So you, first, uh, it feels like Especially, and I, I would have felt like you if my parents would have told me what your parents told you. I, there would have been a relief for sure. If the, the gut feeling was that one that you said of why this is not my why. My why is not that. And, and right. I, 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 I get it, and I and I think and a, lo- a lot of people listening might also identify with that because one of the mm-hmm. things that I often ask is there is when someone when you're in graduate school and you you're leaving and you're not going to for a postdoc those who are you know there's there there can be there have people that I've talked with who 
had people question them, but but why are you doing it? Or are you sure? And you know that like placing putting doubt on on what right. you just said and making you question your decision. Mm -hmm. um, and there can even be criticism of oh you're sure. you're 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 um you know you're or either or you either you're not good enough for this or right. uh, you're uh, you're you're a quitter or etc etc etc. But here I think what you said that's very important is. This thing of coming to a to to this realization that was that you your body was feeling in a way, but your mind wasn't there yet. I had to catch up. You had to catch up, and and I think it has to do with values. I think it has to do with finding your your why in life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's important for people listening that if your why isn't there, it, you can be putting yourself in a lot of trouble and even mental health mm -hmm. problem if you go sure. into this path. And it's and your why is not is really not there because you yeah. might be doing it for someone else, and yeah. and eventually it will tire you. It will it will wear. It will empty you. you out. It will It'll empty you out. Yeah, and that occurred. Uh, I had only one chapter completed by then, mm. and I'm now in my final year. And I had done the arithmetic, and I knew how many I had to do um, before Christmas, mm -hmm. and therefore, and then from Christmas onwards, and. Um, It allowed me to just, well, it, of course, it's bone jarring to go through something like that. Mm. And, and the other thing is, you've been a student all your life. You have been rewarded for being a good student mm. all your life. Your identity is wrapped up in this. And further, your identity is wrapped up in a process. I am doing a doctorate. Mm. It's not, I have done one. It's not, I want to do one. It is, I am doing. It's the continuous present. So that there's a built-in fear finishing because if you finish well then the i am doing is done and in a certain sense you're done mm -hmm. you are over mm -hmm. you are extinguished mm -hmm. and there's a kind of there's a kind of vague but nevertheless overarching fear of finishing That's you know <laughs> and and so but like i say then around that time i saw what happened to my canadian friend peter and some others too and i thought screw this i'm 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 going to uh Um, I, my job is not to shake the foundations of Western civilization. I'm going to finish this doctorate. That's what I'm going to, don't get it right, get it written, like all of this yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And it, it just started, and so I did. I think I got three chapters done before Christmas or, 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 or September. So maybe, I think it was maybe three or four, and then I knew uh, by February, like essentially a chapter a month kind of thing, and I'd done mm -hmm. all kinds of research, and get it done, like get it done. Mm -hmm. So I did. Um, and, and that's what I'd set out to do, uh, was I, I did, it wasn't really that I was looking for a job at the end of it. And I was lucky I was in a position I had, you know, the, the fellowships and scholarships that supported me. Mm -hmm. Um, but in, in that, um, so the existential crisis really wasn't one. And at the end of it, it, it was, uh, what did you go there for? Well, really to learn and to have this huge adventure that you can't do later in life. You can't do it. Uh, you've got a house, you've got children, you've got an apartment, you've got a job, you've got whatever. Mm. You, you really can't. Or I can't imagine myself. Mm. Not really. At least not in the same way, not being in a, you know, in a college not free. in Oxford. Not, that's it. Not free. It's not the same not experience. Yeah. Where you could just hop on your bike and go to that pub because you know those friends are there yeah. talking about <laughs> their unpublished novels which by the way they have since published uh and uh and and so on um and and 
that kind of ease or that freedom or flexibility? Well, of course you can. Mm-hmm. You, you know, adulthood descends whether or not you want it to, mm-hmm. and so you can't. So, so what did? And so I ended up answering the first principles, which got articulated at the end. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, so I didn't have to go off and get a second or a postdoc or a second doctorate or what have you. Mm. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. It was just finish this thing mm. and then, and then wait and see. And it's okay to wait and see, mm-hmm. and it's okay not to know. And it's, 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 and it's okay not to feel okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay not to feel okay. You don't have to know and take the pressure off. Right? No, that, that, that's totally yeah. true. So th- this question of not knowing and, 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 um, accepting the uncertainty i think is really important mm-hmm. and and again if you want to feel cozy and you just stick around because that's where you feel safe you may run into trouble later on yeah uh, yeah now what and uh, first i'm going to ask you a question which is do you have time to go on a little bit more because we've done the 40 minutes but i think yeah i have to the bottom of the hour is that okay or or thereabouts so about seven or ten more minutes is that seven cool? or ten is perfect seven or ten is perfect okay. because okay so now now at this point you you have this mission of finishing and you and you yeah. finish and you don't know what's coming next no and and, and you've already said that you, you you now were okay with that because yeah i guess you had this mission of, of finishing and of defending right um you defended in in oxford so it was a, a v, or what is the viva they call it what what's a viva a viva viva, viva <laughs> voce yeah. um now after the viva what you know how did you get your first gig doing and you talked about journalism was that it right away and how did it happen well, how did you how know, did you present uh, yeah. yourself as a phd in literature okay. you know sure and again this is this thing about getting out of your bubble because it's the un you know con- connections that you can't predict which leads you in these series of contingencies to mm-hmm. what it is that you're doing and it's all contingent right mm-hmm. it's all what if so um I got back to Canada. I, I needed money eventually, so I started proofreading Harlequin romance novels. That's okay. what I did with my doctorate, um, which sounds funny, and I did make a doctorate <laughs> about it, but when you're doing it, it's degrading because mm-hmm. uh, it's just so boring. The writing is so shitty. Uh, <laughs> the money's not great, and what am I doing here? So, but you needed to do it, right? So a guy I knew, Oxford Canadian, was having a dinner in Cabbage Town, at the dinner was a neighbor of mm-hmm. the family where he was visiting. That neighbor would get ideas. Okay. He said, I have a friend who's interested in broadcasting. And she said, oh, okay. So we met. She's an ex-academic who got into documentary making. Okay. We met, and it was serendipitous that we met, but it was at cross-purposes this entire lunch until the last five minutes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know how she made the transition from academia into broadcasting and documentary making. Mm-hmm. She thought I had a specific episode pitch because ideas takes pitches from, from people. And so we were talking in this bizarre kind of, it just wasn't On working. two different so, planets. <laughs> two different planets. It was pleasant and it was great. And it was that. And, um, and, uh, uh, and she eventually said, look, we're having a meeting next week to determine all the freelance projects that we're going to take on. What's mm-hmm. your pitch? So I tap danced. I said, well, Oscar Wilde, uh, he's been seen like this. I think he's really like that. And I think the, the, the that is the way he uses language. Mm-hmm. And I think we should put him on trial again. Wilde had three trials that he was involved with. Uh, and, and, but I think a kind of a trial 
where where we look at them again. Okay, and I typed something up and got it to her, and that became my first broadcast. So interesting. <laughs> which, which then led, I Samuel Beckett died, and so I pitched a series on Beckett. So I was freelancing for them, okay. and then somebody at a at a daily arts program went on an extended pregnancy leave, and then I got, hey, would you like that? And that's kind of this this moving forward but walking backwards kind of motion uh, <laughs> that led to all of it happening. So yeah, yeah, those connections. And, and indeed, when I was in Amsterdam and Radio Netherlands had been cut by 70, that's 70%. Oh, wow. And the program I was working on died on the vine. I was still working elsewhere at Radio Netherlands, but it was clear when you're cut by 70%, you better start looking around. Mm. I mean, you're being told that your institution is going to die. That's yeah. what you're being told. Yeah, yeah. So, and I told my wife, uh, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I think the only thing at CBC I'd ever be interested in is ideas, but everybody wants to. Work there and, mm -hmm. eh. So um, that was November when the program I was working on uh, died on the vine. I was still working at Radio Netherlands on this and that and the other thing, um, but I checked out mentally. And in April, I got an email from somebody I had kept in touch with at CBC saying the interim year-long executive producer of ideas is retiring tomorrow. Get your name in. And bang, 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 bang. Oh, wow. It's those connections. It's keeping them, cultivating them, keeping them alive because you like them. And then you never know. Mm. You never know. It opens up more contingencies. Mm. Why close? Yeah. Open them up. <laughs> so uh, now, we're, now we're reaching the end of the interview and you, you mentioned this person you had a dinner with. She was an, an ex-academic who, who was now mm -hmm. uh, at CBC. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of people that, that you see around you that have, you know, pursued studies to a certain level? Maybe oh, not sure. the PhD. Yeah, there are a lot of academic refugees at CBC Radio. <laughs> academic sure. refugees. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, okay, so my follow-up question is, um, clearly you, you're – you know, you're passionate. You were passionate about Oscar Wilde. You yeah. you've now done work, you know, on other uh, on the, the themes you, you mentioned, Samuel Beckett. Uh, but you know, you did take these studies quite far. Um, mm -hmm. These other people have too, and now you're in this ins institution, this this entity, creating content. Uh, what do you feel? The, the the that's this academic refugee background brings to the teams these people are in and uh, why what i'm thinking is if someone is out there listening who feels that okay i'm finishing my phd but i want to maybe go into media uh, but you know but i'm wondering are am i going to be appreciated are my uh, is the work i've done going to translate into something can you can you maybe talk about that a little bit mm. what do you bring as someone with such a background in the teams that you're part of, sure. the projects that you're part yeah, of. Sure. On occasion, it is the knowledge that you bring to the table on something and somebody talking about something. And it's, well, actually I can be on that panel because I happen to know there's that, that doesn't happen frequently. What is more operative is um, perseverance. Um, if you have done a doctorate, you have probably faced down that long dark night of the soul. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm not qualified, whatever you have wrestled that demon down to the ground at least long enough to get the thing done. Mm -hmm. That perseverance is absolutely crucial, I think, in anything. And a kind of attitude that what you're going to do, you'll do it thoroughly. You're not going to uh, do it superficially. Half-assed. Half half-assed, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, 
I, I think perseverance and thoroughness in that order. Uh, that you, you you've you've developed a kind of emotional and psychological Kevlar if you've gone mm. through a doctorate, and that's it's not necessarily the content of what you've learned. It may or may not apply. Maybe it's maybe it's you know marketing green energy that is the thing that you're going to be doing. It mm. has nothing to do with the quantum mechanics that you studied, mm-hmm. but maybe it does. But it's not the content. It is. It is the relationship that you brought to the work at hand Mm -hmm. and the people around you. And those things do export very, very easily. I agree. And just to finish, as a kind of advice for for people who are listening, um, you've mentioned that your way into what you're doing today was to freelance and uh, and before that you did this hard you know you I, I just heard about this book which which is called Start Ugly which is <laughs> which I think is a great idea which is don't when you fin- you can finish a PhD and think now I need to go up in society yeah. in whatever and if you're transitioning to another space you might have to go down a little bit and mm-hmm. and, and accept something that's not perfect to then yeah. work your way up but this is not what I really want to ask of you is to tell people. What they can do uh, to to uh, do the first steps of becoming maybe a and I'm thinking of your domain a good candidate for something that resembles what you do. So you you mentioned uh, ed, do, doing editing or revision. I, I don't remember exactly the term that you used, but there's that and there's how do you talk to people who are hiring and and you know explain that yes you have a PhD. Uh, yes, it's not required for the position, but you're the man or you're the woman uh, for that position. Well, you know, if a person wants to uh, like a career in media, it may not be the wisest thing to be choosing right now. Mm-hmm. It's in flux and it's volatile. It's always been difficult. It's harder now. It's much harder. Okay. So you might want to think of having it as at least to begin with passion projects so that you are the person to write that article. And mm-hmm. when you're pitching yourself or pitching an idea, why would that publication, website, TV show, radio, want this thing that you're offering? Mm-hmm. Know what it is that they do and show how what you're proposing fits into what they do. Mm-hmm. I get, if you're ever looking, you know, um, I'm a very hardworking person and I'm, I can't do anything with that. But when I get a pitch, did you know that there's this... Uh, uh, celebrated proto-feminist poet from the 16th century in France who may not have written a word of what she's celebrated for. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. And this person has a doctorate in French literature. <laughs> she knows who could interview. Well, now, now she's demonstrating that she understands what the program does mm-hmm. and that she's a person who could do this thing, this thing that's consistent with and desirable from my point of view. Mm-hmm. So think of yourself, if you're on the other side of the table, so to speak, why would you want to hire yourself? <laughs> and if you can answer that question, you're about three steps ahead of everyone else. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Greg, uh, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And um, I, I've really enjoyed the, your your outlook on all of this. And, and, and talking also about the evolution of, of things, mm. as we we're talking, when we we're talking about Oxford, uh, my... I, I'm not a lit, uh, you know, literary uh, mind per se, but I, I do. I, I did. I did have a phase where I followed uh, Stephen Fry a lot, 
Sure, and yeah. and heard uh, and I, I believe uh, I saw the his, his the movie where he plays Oscar Wilde. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've I've heard him uh, for sure talk about Oscar Wilde, and uh, I, I find it uh, it was interesting to travel in time to that time where you were you were you know you were going into this jungle and you were going to find these new this new space of of what you know who Oscar Wilde was what what he had written mm -hmm. why etc etc. It was really really interesting to do that. Good. And it was also great to to have kind of a view of, especially in your domain, what things are looking like, what people can do to to uh, to to start showing an interest in 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 what you do. Now, if people were were you know interested by your story and they want to reach out to you, what's the best platform to do so? Uh, Greg Kelly at cbc.ca. Okay, perfect. And uh, uh, I will share that in in the show notes. Also, for sure, I will share a link to uh, to ideas. Uh, okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners uh, that maybe a, an ongoing project or something that's coming up? Uh, not really. Just ideas matter. Listen to the program. Uh, we speak about ideas. What's harder to realize is how ideas speak through us. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fun is. Excellent. Well, Greg, thank you so much for having been on Papa PhD. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, the listeners will have a lot to, to take from, from our conversation. And uh, all the best for your projects. And again, thank you. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.